how it began. You know what you have just done. You have transferred us in time and space, and I haven't even set the controls. Now, I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe and at any time. A strange, unbelievable adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's that? Who's that? Come with us into that strange new world. We cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you a startling experience. you can see their fire. So thrilling it will astound you. Barbara, look behind you! Stop the countdown! The bomb will destroy the planet! A fantastic journey into the incredible awaits you. We expect you to be here to meet us! Welcome to the very first episode of Bureau 42's newest podcast, Make Me Watch It. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. So for those who haven't heard of this before, possibly listening through Bureau 42's master audio feed with all of our podcasts, here's the basic concept to make me watch it. I love movies just like I love TV shows, I love comics. I have this habit of buying titles faster than I can make time to watch them, and then I end up with movies just kind of sitting on a shelf or in a drawer for months or years, often stolen the cellophane. The entire concept of this podcast is to force me to work through those. You're going to make me watch it. So any feature I've got, so not TV, not short films, but something that qualifies as a feature film, as in it's a minimum of 40 minutes, and it was originally meant to be a piece of standalone entertainment, whether it was a theatrical release or a made-for-TV movie or a direct-to-video release, As long as it was designed to be a one-time thing, then it qualifies, barring sequels or trilogies and that sort of thing. So with that in mind, I opened up voting to anyone. So you can go to Bureau42.com and follow the links on the right-hand side or at the bottom if you're using a mobile device to find the Make Me Watch It voting lists and place your votes. The first wave of votes were set up by decade, and I did that in April of 2016 and shared it with people just to make sure I had the spreadsheets working and the votes would tabulate correctly and that sort of thing. By the time the podcast was officially announced in June, I had enough to add the first addendum list. So these are more titles that I now own but haven't watched yet that can be chosen from. Episodes are going to be in different formats. The 14th of every month, we will have an episode like this, where I sit down and watch whatever movie is getting the highest number of votes from that Make Me Watch It list, or at least as of the time of the previous recording, whatever had the most votes. Other episodes could be thrown in when, you know, either we're entertaining guests who want to watch something else on the list, so I'll just talk about something that we happen to watch anyway to discuss that, because frankly, if we just watch one at a time, I'm going to have to live to be about 130 to get through the movies that I've already got, let alone any that get added to the list. 
There are also some podcasters that I want to work with and people that I want to have on the podcast. In that case, people who are coming in by invitation can look at the entire list of options and just handpick that they want to do this title or that title, and then that's the one we've discussed whether anyone's voted or not. Those episodes will appear randomly between the regular releases on the 14th of each month. So there are a few things that we want to go through with every podcast. We actually have a little outline worked out. So of course we're going to go through the titles. Now, from this first round of voting, the title that has received more votes than anything else is Doctor Who and the Daleks from 1965. In fact, it was originally released on June 25th in 1965 in London, and then got worldwide distribution later. Now, going through major members of the cast and crew, this was directed by Gordon Fleming, who was born in 1934 in Glasgow, Scotland, and worked pretty much until his death in July 1995. In fact, there were things he directed that were released after his death. IMDb says he's best known for this and the second Doctor Who film, as well as The Army Game or Philby Burgess and MacLean. Going through his IMDb listings, it looks like he did a lot of directing for the BBC. So there are quite a few things in here that would be much more familiar to our British listeners than North American people such as myself. Now, the writing credits get a little bit confusing. And some of that is because of the history of this. So I should get into that. We didn't have social media in the 1960s. So we couldn't go on Facebook and see that all of our British friends are, you know, raving about Broadchurch and then build up enough of a pull to have that brought to North America. It was very difficult for shows produced for one television market to break their way into shows produced in another. So what the BBC and some other companies did to do that was take a few episodes of a TV series and edit them together because it was easier to get films into other countries than TV shows. So you'd watch the first few episodes edited together as though it was a film. So it, in a lot of cases, it would feel like an anthology with three or four stories. Audiences would get a feel for it that way. And then they would help basically campaign the TV series or the TV stations to go pick up that series from that other country. So the BBC did a lot of their overseas sales that way they would release edits of shows as movies. It was tough to do that with Doctor Who. It was one of their biggest local hits, but it was also very serialized. So their most popular story from the first season was The Daleks. The problem was that was a seven-parter and each part was 25 minutes. So that's close to three hours by the time it's been edited together into a single film. Now, that's a tougher sell. That's a long movie. And doing it that way if you watched the series, you'd see that there'd be no explanation for how this group got together. You wouldn't know that the doctor is an alien traveling with his granddaughter and that her classroom teachers were concerned about her safety because, you know, they're known as some anomalies in school. They didn't know that she was an alien at the time because they look human. They just know that she seems to be brilliant in some areas and completely clueless in others. And the doctor effectively kidnapped them when they realized that they were aliens and had all this technology because he didn't feel that mankind was ready to learn about their existence. They'd already gone on an adventure into the ancient past and then skipped from there to the story of the Daleks. So if we just cut that together, you'd have no understanding of how this group got together. And then that, that also ended with a prelude to the next story. Although when you're editing these episodes together, it wouldn't be hard to edit those parts out. But still, Doctor Who was not a good format to just straight up cut and turn it into a film. But because it was such a big hit at home, they wanted to make sure that they had the chance to sell it overseas. So what they decided to do instead was just use that script as the basis 
for an original film. So this is one of the few films the BBC put out that wasn't an edit of other episodes, but was a rewrite. So they actually condensed that into about a 90-minute film based on the story of the Daleks, that seven-parter. In doing so, they changed the relationships between the characters and recast everyone. So the Doctor was no longer an alien traveling with his single granddaughter. In the TV series, these seven episodes were written by Terry Nation, who still has credit for having created the Daleks. Now, he was working with Milton Sabotsky at the time, and because he wasn't going to be adapting the script to the film himself, he wanted to make sure that Sabotsky was involved. So Sabotsky gets the screenplay credit because of that legal arrangement, although it was really David Whitaker who wrote it. And that could be why things were so completely changed. Even though these guys were all common and have a fair amount of work history with the BBC and with other places, particularly Sabotsky worked outside the BBC as well as with them, it just wasn't the same. So on the TV series, the Doctor was still played by William Hartnell and the idea of regeneration hadn't even been conceived yet. He was recast as Peter Cushing, who is known to some people as Grand Moff Tarkin from Star Wars, the 1977 film, known to others for playing Dr. Van Helsing in the Hammer Dracula films. He was also in Top Secret. He was John Banning in The Mummy. He did a lot of Hammer horror films, in addition to his role as Sherlock Holmes in the 1968 TV series and so forth. He's an actor who has been working since 1939 and continued working with 131 credits to his name until 1986. Now, considering he was born in 1913 and lived until 1994, that's saying something. So he plays the Doctor. In this case, he's not just the Doctor, he actually is a human being named Doctor Who, who is just a brilliant scientist and inventor, and a penchant for science seems to run in the family, as now he has two granddaughters, both of whom are, you know, well-known scientists. So the older granddaughter is Barbara. She's no longer Susan's teacher. She also has a decent list of credits, this time going back to 1962, so it was fairly early in her career, but she'd had guest spots on The Avengers, and that's the BBC Avengers, you know, the Steed and Mrs. Peel kind of Avengers. She would later appear in Sherlock Holmes, in The Saint, in Jackanory as the storyteller, in Little Lord Fauntleroy, in Lily. She's got a number of credits, actually 72 credits going right up to 1995. Now, Roberta Tovey was only 11 years old at the time. She's got 25 credits from 1960 until 1987. And director Gordon Fleming was concerned about whether or not this 11-year-old actress was going to hold up the production and cause problems or not. So he actually offered her a shilling, which is worth five pence, effectively a nickel, for every time she did a scene in one take. As it turns out, she's talented enough that she did almost every scene in one take and was racking up quite the amount of shillings. So that deal was not offered to her when she came back for the sequel. And the other major character was Roy Castle. Now on the TV series, he was Susan's science teacher. In the films, he was Barbara's boyfriend. And while there was what some of us interpret as a little bit of romantic tension between Ian and Barbara in the original Doctor Who series, it was made very explicit here. Now he's got the shortest acting career of them with only 19 credits, dating from 1959 to 1985. Now, this is an interpretation of Ian that I'm not a huge fan of. That is no fault of Roy Castle. The script he was given made Ian into the bumbling slapstick comic relief character. And Roy did that. He delivered on the role he was asked to play. There's no fault on Roy Castle's here. I am just 
personally upset with that because I am a big Doctor Who fan. One of the things I've decided to talk about with each of these episodes is why I own the movie but haven't watched it yet. Now, in this case, it's because I am a Doctor Who fan and I've been trying to collect them all. I hadn't watched it yet because I've been prioritizing the quote-unquote incontinuity stories, those that will have an impact on later serials. And because these two movies kind of stand alone, they don't really qualify in that sense. But as far as I'm concerned, Ian Chesterton is the single most important companion in Doctor Who history. If you go back to that very first episode, Doctor and Susan have already been traveling for a time. They're going out there together, and all the Doctor cares about is the scientific research. One of the things that they accurately represent here is that when they travel to the strange planet, see a city in the distance, the Doctor deliberately sabotages the TARDIS to make them go and see it, and to check it out and explore. In the TV series, when the Daleks capture the Doctor and Susan, he's perfectly willing to say, you know, there's a couple of humans out there, you can take them, do whatever you want with them, you can take my TARDIS, just leave my granddaughter and I alone. He wasn't a hero yet. The series starts when Ian and Barbara come in, because that's where the Doctor changes from the scientist to the hero, and he learns how to do that from Ian. Ian was the action star for the first year and a bit of the series. He was the one saying, no, these things aren't right, we're not just going to say sacrificing the girl is just part of their culture and leave it alone, we're going to step up and save this girl's life. He was the one getting involved. And it wasn't until about story six or so when the Doctor started to realize that, yeah, his scientific exploration was turning into an outright adventure. And Ian Chesterton was clearly the driving force behind it. Without Ian, the Doctor would not have become a hero. I don't think we can understate the importance of Ian Chesterton to the Doctor Who franchise. And I was rather saddened to see that he didn't have that same level of respect in this. He really was the comic relief and the Doctor was the hero from the start. Not that I have anything wrong with the Doctor being a hero, I just feel that it misrepresents Ian, who doesn't get the credit that he deserves even to this day, as so many Doctor Who fans just haven't bothered to go back and watch the 1960s episodes with a critical eye, whether it's because they don't like watching the original series because the budgets were so low, or because these ones were black and white, I don't know. In fact, the black and white aspect is something that this movie was trying to actively fight against it advertised heavily that, no, this is Doctor Who in color for the first time ever. So they're trying to appeal to even the local markets to come in and see it. They even sent a bunch of Daleks to swarm the Cannes Film Festival in 1965 to drum up word of mouth and get people talking about this film. Doctor Who was such a huge hit on TV, and this film was a big opportunity to get that into other markets that they were really pushing for it. When it comes to the box office and business side, which I always like to look at, you know, was this a financially successful film and so forth? I can't find anything about how much revenue it generated. I can tell that the budget was £180,000, which has got to be substantial for a BBC production in the 1960s. And clearly they had to have some degree of success, whether it was because it was helping the TV show penetrate the markets, whether the movie itself was doing that well, I can't say. But they did decide to produce a sequel with the same cast, based on the 10th story in the Doctor Who TV series. So as far as the production is concerned, it does look like a fairly low-budget 1960s film, which means it looks like a considerably higher-budget version of the TV series. So the BBC was backing it to the best of their ability. That much is clear when you compare the quality of this film to what they were putting out on TV. Now, I do plan to include things like the awards nominated and won for films as they're discussed. To my knowledge, this was not nominated for anything, nor did it win anything. I do plan to do plot synopsis. The way this one works, it's an adaptation of the TV series, 
basic plot is that a human scientist and his two granddaughters are hanging out at home. Oldest granddaughter's boyfriend shows up. While she's getting ready for their date, the younger granddaughter, her boyfriend, and the doctor all head out to see this time machine he's just invented. Once the older granddaughter catches up, they accidentally trigger it, travel to a different place in space and time. They encounter both the Daleks and the Thals on the planet Skaro, and they end up helping the Thals try to revolt and protect their planet from the Daleks who are just trying to exterminate everything. For the messages and morals, they pull back on a little bit on the anti-nuclear warfare story that made it into the TV series. Essentially, when they were taking that three-hour story and cutting it down to half of that length, plus including an origin story for these characters, they stripped out kind of the subtlety and the philosophical conversations and went straight for plot events and plot events and plot events. So the Doctor does need some Mercury from the Dalek City to get them all back home. They need the Thals' help to get it, eventually succeed, and make it back. It's somewhat entertaining. If you're not sure if you are interested in checking out the 1960s Doctor Who series, this might be a shorter introduction than the series itself would be, although I would recommend, instead of starting with this film, if you want to see if you'd like it, just try the very first 25-minute episode. The original story is considered a four-part story, but the way it's structured, you can make a very strong case that it's actually a one-part story followed by a three-part story. That's going to be probably the most representative way for it to go through and gives you the proper setup for the relationships between these characters. So, from here, when interstitial episodes come out, I'll give you a few days warning in case you want to watch the topic beforehand. On the 14th of next month, we will watch something else that's tied for the highest number of votes. Now, in this case, there's 921 films to vote on, received 1,575 total votes, although one person can vote on more than one film. But at this point, there's actually a seven-way tie for the highest voted films. We've covered Doctor Who and the Daleks. The other six are 1992's version of Bram Stoker's Dracula, Donnie Darko, Flash Gordon, Inception, Sin City, and The Crow from 1994. We'll figure out which one is next and do an official announcement again a week before that one comes out. But those films are likely going to be the next few films that are seen on the 14th of the month over the next few months barring voting that takes place in between months. So if you haven't already, please go to Bureau42.com and check the right-hand side links for not just the original votes, but all of the addendums that are added as my collection grows. Since this episode is being recorded before Christmas, but released after, there will almost certainly be another addendum or two. So feel free to check those out and vote on the addendums if you haven't already. And don't forget to rate this and any of the shows that you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. You can send feedback to Bureau42Podcasts at gmail.com. And finally, thank you for listening. This is how it began. You know what you have just done. You have transferred us in time and space, and I hadn't even set the controls. Now I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe and at any time. A strange, unbelievable adventure that started by accident. Taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's that? Who's that? Come with us into that strange new world. We cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you a startling experience. We
They know we've escaped. They're cutting through the door. So close you can see their fire. So thrilling it will astound you. Barbara, look behind you! Stop the countdown! The bomb will destroy the planet! A fantastic journey into the incredible awaits you. We expect you to be here to meet us!